0: Welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, H.P. Lovecraft is making
1: his second appearance on Elder Sign. For this episode, we've read his very early story, The Beast in the Cave, which was published in the magazine Vagrant in 1918, but was actually written in 1904 1905 when Lovecraft was only. 14. And I'll just say up front that I would be horribly ashamed to read any of the stories that I wrote when I was 14. But this is actually pretty impressive.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, for a story written by a 14 or 15 year old, I think that this is the best version of this story, which is something that I would be hard pressed to say about anything any 14 or 15 year old writes. Uh, I really enjoyed this story. And it really includes a lot of the stuff that makes Lovecraft Lovecraft. A lot of the style is there. A lot of his interests are there. And you just see them at an earlier stage. And some of that is what we'll be talking about in the discussion. I also want to take a second to talk about Glenn's novella, The Lion That Stalks by Night. Uh, This story can be found in The Yellow Book, Volume 5, which is published by Old Style Press. It's available for free on the publisher website, or you can get a paperback copy uh, for about $5 on Amazon. And that comes with some other stories as well. This is a story I really enjoyed when I read it. It takes place uh, at a fictional school called the Barrow School in a pseudo-shared universe that uh, was the genesis of us starting Clay Temple Media. Uh, The main character is a young girl named Rose, and she gets into some mystical trouble with her friends. And it's a really, really fun uh, sort of buildings Roman uh, urban fantasy story. I really loved it. So I encourage everybody to check it out. All right, well, let's now talk about the beast in the cave. Glenn, why don't you get us going? The Beast in the Cave
1: is the story of a person. I'm not actually sure about the age of this person. That might be fun to talk about. Uh, It's the story of a person who gets separated from his tour group while he's visiting Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. It's largely a first-person introspective examination of the various fear responses that the narrator has. But it's also about how he gets out of the cave. And of course, it's about his encounter with the titular Beast. At first, when the narrator realizes that he's lost and that he's probably wandered too far to be found by any search party that might be sent after him, he tries to resolve himself to the fact that he is going to die here and that he's going to die of starvation. The narrator says here, hope had departed yet indoctrinated as I was by a life, a philosophical study. I derived no small measure of satisfaction from my unimpassioned demeanor. For although I had frequently read of the wild frenzies into which were thrown the victims of similar situations, I experienced none of these. And uh, I'm absolutely fascinated by Lovecraft's notion that philosophy is a tool for controlling or losing your uh, emotions. Uh, It sounds like a Vulcan here, right? This is Mr. Spock.
0: I know, it's really funny. But I I also glommed onto this passage about how being indoctrinated by philosophy allows the narrator to simply accept their fate when faced with this possibility of death. I kind of read this as Lovecraft trying to work out, even at this young age that he's writing this story, what it is that gives someone the presence of mind to narrate a tale about Going mad, and he—he, he, you can just see him working on these ideas at this first story that he gets published. Right, there
1: are a number of different fear responses or fear adjacent responses that the narrator is going to go through during the the course of just a five page story. And yeah, right, and, and I think that's absolutely right that that's Lovecraft's purpose here. He's trying to explore those emotions and what that would actually be like. At this point, the, the narrator also explains that he was comforted by the fact that at least he was going to get to die in this majestic location. I'll say that this line actually really quite resonated with me. There are three times in my life when I thought that I was going to die on a backpacking trip. And I don't mean that I thought I was in a dangerous situation. I mean that I knew that I was going to die in a matter of moments. It didn't happen. But in those moments, I've had essentially the same thought, kind of reconciling myself to it. and like, well, at least I'm in the Canadian Rockies. Look how beautiful it's going to be while this wolf pack eats me. And, you know, in those situations, I definitely wanted the outcome to involve me going to town and having a beer, right? But that did actually at least make it okay, right? That I was out there doing something awesome. So, anyway, the, the narrator has a torch with him, and it's a, a real fire on a stick torch, not a flashlight. That's actually not always clear in Lovecraft, who likes to use the, the British terms for things. And as the torch begins to burn out, he is reminded of the consumptives who had set up a colony in the cave in the hopes that the cave's climate would cure them.
0: Yeah, it's true that the first tuberculosis hospital was built inside and around Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. And I did a little research on this. Of the 15 initial patients, there there might have been a few more who participated in this experiment where they believed or were sold by the doctor that living in the cave could cure their tuberculosis. Five of them died. And it it, kind of Turns out at the end of the day that living in a cave is is not a medical it's not actually a medical cure for <laughs> tuberculosis it's really it's really fascinating I mean this place has a really really cool history and almost as soon as this uh, hospital was shut down and it's kind of strange to call it a hospital but it's it's kind of thought of as one now they started giving tours it became a tourist attraction uh, and and this tubercular hospital hospital became a big part of the tourist attraction that is Mammoth Cave. Right. I've actually lived not too far from Mammoth Cave for a,
1: a year of my life. So I have been to Mammoth Cave a few times. And you can still see some of these huts. There's, I think, two of them left, right? If you go, if you take the right tour, you get to get to see them. And it's, it's eerie. It's also very cool. And I can imagine a young Lovecraft seeing photographs of these in the Encyclopedia Britannica or whatever that he was uh, reading to do research for this story
0: and being really inspired by this. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure I know where he got the idea for this story from, but we'll get to that a little later <laughs> all right i'm excited for that well the the narrator of the
1: story has also seen these huts on his tour, and when he saw them he he 'd wondered how living in a cave had affected these patients and he he realizes now that he 's going to find out what happens if you get stuck in this cave but he 's not done yet he he really doesn't actually want to starve to death in the dark here so he determines to do everything that he can to get out which doesn't really mean a whole lot. At this point, it just means calling for help really loud. So it's not clear to me that the narrator's study of philosophy has engendered a lot of competence, even if it's uh, engendered a lot of dispassion. But the shouting does actually seem to work. The, the narrator hears somebody walking toward him, and he assumes that it's the, the tour guide or someone else who's come looking for him. But when he listens more closely, he realizes that these footballs are not like those of any mortal man. Rather, They sound like the padded paws of a cat. And sometimes the creature is clearly walking on four legs, but sometimes it's clearly walking on two.
0: I love this phrase, not like those of any mortal man. It (laughs) opens up this strange category of beings that could be making the footsteps. It could be an animal, as the narrator assumes it is. Uh but it could be something immortal, I suppose. It's it's an odd way to describe what's lurking in the dark cave, and I and I think it's kind of a cool phrase.
1: Yeah, it really cues us up to think that something supernatural is going on here. I mean, you know, I guess the first thing I would think of as a not a mortal man would be uh, a vampire, I suppose, if we're thinking about immortality. But this is also a phrase that uh, a medieval writer might have used to be thinking about fairies. And usually to get into the magical realm of fairy, you go through a, a cave uh, or some underground location. So that also might be what Lovecraft has in mind here for his contemporary audience to be thinking about. And that's it's an expertly used line here, especially for a 14-year-old. It's really well done. So as you say, Brandon, he thinks this is an animal of some sort, probably a mountain lion. And he then also thinks that maybe this is a blessing, right? Because starving to death is a slow and really painful process. So being consumed by an animal, though, that's also going to hurt. At least it's going to be over quickly. Nevertheless, the narrator's instinct of self-preservation stirs in his breast and he decides to put up a fight. And so he gathers some rocks around him that he can use to, to kill the beast if it attacks him. And as he's waiting, he he wonders what type of creature this beast is. It seems to walk in a strange manner for one, but it also sounds big, which must make finding food in this ecosystem really difficult. And, and certainly the narrator believes that this beast can't be a member of a species that's indigenous to the cave, but must be an animal that is trapped here, very much like the narrator himself is. And even though he's in real danger and is scared, the narrator laments that because his torch has gone out, he'll never actually be able to see the beast, to properly identify it, to see what it is, right? And, and especially to study what physiological effects living in a cave for a long time has had on it.
0: You know, we see that though he is in the darkness and he's being hunted by an animal, the workings of the rational mind are still really prevailing in the narrator's own telling of this story he's left with his imagination and all he can think about is how he or any creature might be able to survive in this cave system. But he also, as you pointed out, Glenn, thinks about what sort of hideous change that might bring about in in any living creature who's forced to live this way. I also like that he's thinking about these things, he's imagining what it what it it would take to survive. And, you know, since he's thinking about survival, he's gonna pick up fragments of rock to try to attack this animal or whatever is lurking in the dark. And this really demonstrates how bold the character is. And I think this narrator is a little overconfident in his rational capabilities. He thinks he can kind of think himself out of any situation and that leads him to be overly bold when he shouldn't. I mean he's so rational that he believes he can wander away from the tour group in one of the largest cave systems in the world, because he can trust his own ability to mentally map out the turns that he takes. And he can wander around in the dark if he has to. So I really wonder if this sort of tension here, this, this overly developed rational capability, is a conscious choice on Lovecraft's part at 14 or 15, or if he's kind of thinking about something else entirely, or what he's inhabiting with this character. And we're going to talk about some of that in the discussion.
1: Yeah, it's really hard for me not to just read this as a story about Spock or, or some other Vulcan, but, but especially Spock, really, because even just this cave scenario really calls to mind, to me, the, the, the episode with the Horda, where Spock is in a cave with a strange creature uh, that seems to be harming other people, and he has to kind of figure out what it is and how to communicate with it. Uh, it's quite possible that is actually the genesis of that Star Trek episode, is that someone was reading this Lovecraft story. That's my new headcanon anyway. I want to believe that. Well, the, the narrator at this point is tucked in his hiding place and he's armed with these rocks and he listens as the beast approaches and as it draws nearer he realizes that it's not breathing very well and it sounds like it must be really fatigued so rather than wait for it at this point the narrator throws a rock at the the sound of the the breathing and his first rock misses but his second hits the beast which falls and stops making any noise other than this labored breathing but the narrator has not killed it. He's only wounded it. And now his curiosity about the beast is gone. Instead, he's overcome by groundless superstitious fear. And he decides to make a run for it, even though he can't actually see anything. And as he's running, he hears ahead of him another sound. And this time he knows for sure that it is the guide because he can also see some torchlight. And when the narrator meets the guide, he just collapses at his feet and gibbers his thanks and the, the story of what's happened to him. And we are, at this point, a, a far cry from the unimpassioned demeanor of this opening paragraph. But together now, they, they go to see what the creature is, they've got a light now, and, and when they reach it, they give vent to a simultaneous ejaculation of wonderment, which uh, I think should probably be an Olympic event or something sounds amazing it's a great turn of phrase
0: <laughs> yeah it is a really great turn of phrase i i would say if i were grading this story if i you know if, I, if somebody handed this in to me uh, I, my only comment would be something like don't rely so much on a thesaurus which is kind of always a young writer's mistake especially a teenager you know you're trying to sound more adult, and so you 're just finding these synonyms for all these words that you want to use and this story just kind of reads like uh, so many words were taken from a thesaurus
1: oh absolutely and i I think that a teenaged lovecraft here thinking about what it's going to be like to be an adult is all over the story, not just in the word choice, but in the the characterization. It and it's really quite fascinating to see this to see this hyper intelligent fourteen year old boy thinking about how awesome it's gonna be to be a grown up. I mean we've we've all been there and also all been sorely disappointed. <laughs> So the the narrator and the guide are shocked by what they see here. This is why there's this simultaneous ejaculation of wonderment. And the narrator tells us that of all the unnatural monsters either of us had in our lifetimes beheld, this was in surprising degree, the strangest. This made me think about my life choices, because I have not seen a single unnatural monster, uh, let alone several unnatural monsters. And I am disappointed in that. But okay, so what is the creature, right? That's what we're all here for. And, and Lovecraft has done a nice job of delaying the description until the end. So this creature looks like an anthropoid ape, uh, perhaps something that's escaped from some circus nearby. Its hair is snow white, which is probably because it's been in the cave for a long time. But its hair is also very thin everywhere on its body, except on its head, where in fact, it's actually quite long. It falls down well past this ape's shoulders It also doesn't have a tail. And I think everyone knows where this is going, right? But Lovecraft is not going to give us the dramatic revelation just yet as they're inspecting it, the, the creature stirs and the guide even drops his pistol. Uh, I guess being a Tory guide is serious business in Lovecraft's world. And uh, they think that they're in danger again. But all that happens here is that the, the creature flips over so they can see its face, which is offset by deep set jet black eyes. And, and then the, the beast makes a series of sounds. And finally, it dies from the wound that the narrator had given it. But those sounds are really important here. And I'll just read the end of the story. Then fear left, and wonder, awe, compassion, and reverence succeeded in its place, for the sounds uttered by the stricken figure that lay stretched out on the limestone had told us the awesome truth. The creature I had killed, the strange beast of the unfathomed cave, was, or had at one time been, a man. And uh, this last word is in all caps and is followed by not one, not two, but three exclamation points. This is meant to be a startling and unsettling revelation that this creature was a human. And that's the end of the story.
0: Yeah. He's trying to force shivers down your spine uh, rather inelegantly, <laughs> I think. But it is a really fun revelation. There's there's two images in this section that I just want to <laughs> talk about real quick. The first the first sets up the description of the character. And it's an image that really failed for me uh, in reading this story. And, and I'm going to read it uh, aloud here. Uh, the narrator says this. Soon I decried a white object upon the floor, an object whiter, even than the gleaming limestone itself. And th- this doesn't work for me, uh, because they're comparing the creature, which is this kind of albino type figure, which was animate once, to limestone, which is inanimate. And also, we're calling it an object. And And to me, you know, this is just kind of a nitpicky note. It just doesn't set up the image that well. Uh, and-, and I just wanted to point that out, because sometimes we like to workshop these stories. That's not what we're going to do. But this image really jumped out to me um, as you know something I probably shouldn't do if I'm writing. Not describing people as objects is probably a good idea, and comparing them to limestone. I think this is a place where the thesaurus really actually failed Lovecraft. Right, he he was trying not to
1: reuse the same nouns that he's used already: beast and, and creature, and and so on, and or, you know, animal and and others, and just settled on object, which is better than thing, right? But it's not the right word for this. And so yeah, that's a sentence that is not very good and could have been reworked. And and certainly, you know, later Lovecraft, even just 15 years later, Lovecraft is going to do a lot better with, uh, with thinking those through thinking through the implications of the words that he's using, and so on.
0: Right. And it's just, it, it's just, uh, it just goes to show you that, you know, the right image can set up or kind of make uh, reveal sort of fall short. And I think in this case, he, he recovers really well. I, I love this other phrase uh, describing the the beast's eyes. It's black eyes, destitute of iris. And this image really jumped out at me. And while while I was reading up about uh, you know the strange hospital and, and the cave system, um, which clearly caught Lovecraft's early imagination, I discovered that a, a book was published in the late, in the late nineteenth century called John Smith's. Funny Adventures on a Crutch, which is a boys' adventure <laughs> novel written by A.F. Hill. And it contains an episode where John Smith is taking a tour of Mammoth Cave shortly after this cave cure business had been shut down. And the tour guide in that story describes, you know, the caves and, and the, the hospital and people who lived in them and around them. And, and And says this, he notes that people who emerged after living in the caves for a while had perfectly black eyes, no matter what their color, and this just kind of jumped out to me It's like I think this story uh, this boy's adventure novel was was a real inspiration for Lovecraft. Maybe he took this episode and thought about what if what if one of the tubercular people got. Lost, wandering in there, and survived. If if they really were cured, maybe even cured of mortality on some level, or they grew old there and then they became a beast that stalked these tour groups. And it's just, I I just was thinking about the genesis of that idea. I mean, we have a tour guide with a pistol. What's more, part of a boy's adventure story than that? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think, uh, you know, on that note, those are really all the comments I have on the story. We can get right into the discussion. And the first thing I want to talk about is the focus on rationality and philosophical training that this narrator relies upon in order to get through this ordeal. I mean, even after he is like gibbering at the feet of the tour guide, they still decide to go back and do more investigation to uncover what the beast was. So I'd really just like to hear your thoughts, Glenn, on how this struck you, on how this focus on rationality and philosophical training struck you in this story, given Lovecraft's real interest in Fear and madness, and the types of things that that make his protagonists often unable to speak coherently about. Do you think, you know, that this clearly intelligent teenage Lovecraft is trying to imagine how adults think and process difficult situations? You know, in other words, how do you think mental states function? Mental states function in this story compared to some other of Lovecraft's works there's actually quite a bit going on in this story
1: along these lines. I think we might actually go back to the the statement of Randolph Carter as a kind of angle into that, where we have two characters instead of just the one. And the narrator of that story is actually not the hyper-intellectual uh, person who has been a lifelong student of philosophy and other humanities disciplines, but is in fact uh, someone who, who hasn't done those things is kind of a, a tag-along character. And is told repeatedly by the hyper intelligent character, the well educated character, that he's not good enough to to really go with him on this adventure. That because he's not educated enough, that he would actually experience uh, an overwhelming fear if he were to go into the the depths of the the cemetery, and so he's just going to leave Randolph Carter behind. And I think we can see some of that here in in Lovecraft. I think it's possible to see Lovecraft at at 14, 15, and trying to understand what the the world is. And I I think that we can sympathize, maybe empathize even with an extremely nerdy, unathletic kid who is hoping that by studying books and by being really intelligent, that when he is an adult, that the playing field will be a little bit different, right? That he will have an edge on the people who uh, are perhaps shunning him socially in high school at, at this moment, not to do too much, you know, crit fic here, psychoanalyzing. But I think that Lovecraft is equating study and intelligence, intelligence and education, we might say, with courage and moral fiber, moral toughness here, guts at the opening of that story when he does when he has that line. But then he flips that on its head when in fact, the narrator is faced with the actual uh, and with an immediate danger and the real sounds of this creature and just loses it, though it is possible that maybe what causes him to really lose it is his own violence. But that I'm not I'm not sure about. And I guess this is all kind of maybe a wandering, rambling way to say that I, I, I see Lovecraft maybe trying to do a couple of different things here. One, to be thinking about w- what it is to to be an adult, what he should be doing now to be the best adult that he can be. But then also exploring what it's like, yeah, to, to lose your mind in uh, superstitious fear, as he describes the narrator's fear at the end here.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think he's really... Clearly inspired by boys' adventure novels and is putting a horror spin on them. What would he do, maybe, as an adult in these circumstances? Or what if there really is terror lurking in the darkness? How would. Anybody respond to that? And is, is 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 fear the thing that really maybe levels the playing field? And on that note, I kind of just want to ask again: like, what do you think the real fears are that Lovecraft is exploring in this story? I mean, are we meant to view this this aged cave dwelling albino man as something less than human? Is there is there some fear associated with this creature? Or is the fear simply something that the narrator brought into the cave with him that had to be exposed, uh, revealed to himself in this sort
1: of crisis? Well, there are so many things to be afraid of here, right? Uh, Being lost and alone in a place you can't get out of uh, the dark. Uh, being afraid of dying and dying of a a slow death from starvation. Those are all those are three distinct things to be afraid of in this situation. And then we have the fear that you're going to get eaten by uh, this wild, this wild beast, right? That's a that's a whole nother fear. Then I think he has a fear response as well to his own violence, or maybe more of a horror response to his own violence. But also then yeah, he's afraid of the creature when they look at it, right? He's he has a real visceral response to, to it and then we get this surprising revelation at the end that's you know a shocking revelation right that this is a man and it's unclear to me if if what we're supposed to get from that that what's shocking is that i can't believe that there's a person down here and perhaps it is one of these tuberculosis patients who has survived for a long time or gosh is this someone who was born is this the, the child of of two tuberculosis patients, right, who was born in this cave, if if that's what we're supposed to be amazed at, if that's why there are the exclamation points, or if what we're supposed to be feeling here is, I can't believe that this is something that happened to a person, that a person was so degraded to turn into this actual beast, something that is no better than an ape. Lovecraft is going to lean in that direction later, so I'm inclined to think that that's what he's exploring here, but I- I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, Lovecraft does seem to have a, a sort of interest in the sorts of things that make us less than human in, in in some regard. And I wonder if that is what he's doing in this story. Is One, that the, the, the fact of growing up and getting older is no guarantee of being... Uh, some form of human being in, in his mind, in his estimation. Um, but also the the shock of aging itself might be something that is horrifying to a 14 or 15-year-old boy, the fragility of uh, life, of, of getting old. Yeah, I, I really uh, wonder, I really wonder what this, what fears lovecraft the the writer at fifteen fourteen years old is trying to work out through this story or if he's just having a good old time right of course, naturally, there is a certain amount
1: of just wanting to tell a fun story, a good yarn here, but I think this is a pretty sophisticated story for a fifteen year old that he has an idea that he wants to explore. It's not just wouldn't it be cool if X, right? This is an actual idea he's exploring, several different types of fear, the different responses that you would have to those things. And then also, yeah, this this real interest in what would happen to a human body if it's stuck in this cave for a long time, which may actually be the the anxieties of uh, a boy going through puberty and thinking about physiological changes and aging as well, as you say. I think this is a remarkably sophisticated
0: story. Yeah, I agree with you. I have one question that's going to take us a little beyond the end of the story. Uh, there's kind of a, maybe a, a curveball here. Do you think the narrator should be accused of murder here? <laughs> or is this kind of less than hu- human argument really working for you? <laughs> (laughs) I wondered about
1: this as well. (laughs) Always, always, I think, at the end of Weird Fiction Stories, you have to ask, okay, but what happens next? What happens when the police show up, right? What do the newspapers say about this the next day? Uh, But I think actually, you know, being no lawyer and certainly being no lawyer from circa 1905, I think my sense is that uh, he's going to be okay here, that the worst he would be charged with would be manslaughter. But I suspect that's not actually going to happen either. But I would like to read a sequel to this story in which we identify who this person is. If we are assuming that this is one of the tuberculosis patients who actually was cured of his tuberculosis and survived for you know, another 50 years in this cave, if we could identify who this person is and find that person's family, I think there's a sequel to be, to be written here.
0: Yeah, and I think J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, Tolkien already wrote it. I think this guy found a found a ring in the cave and just kind of <laughs> wandered around there for a little while, eating the fish and bats. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I'm actually ashamed I didn't make the gollum joke first. <laughs> um, and I, I just just one more question to follow to to finish up here. Do you really think the narrator was in danger from this creature? Do you think this this man was capable of actually doing any? harm? Or do you think that all of the darkness really came into the cave with the narrator? I don't think the narrator was ever
1: actually in any harm. I think that this is uh, one, if as we're assuming this was a tuberculosis patient, then this is an extremely old person. And I think that's hinted at with the uh, the, the long hair, but I think there's a, a, a trick going on, which is that the narrator, when he first sees the beast, assumes that the whiteness is from having been in the cave, but actually the whiteness of the hair is because this is an old person, right? And so I don't think that the narrator was ever actually in any danger. And I also don't think that the this person who was responding to the noise intended any danger or any violence to the narrator. I mean, this is probably the first human the this this person has encountered in 50 years or so. And he wants to get out of this cave too, right? That's, that's my assumption. So again, there's another sequel to be written here that's about the response that this narrator has, knowing that he's accidentally killed a, a, a person who could have actually left with them and escaped and lived a, a little while longer back in civilization. I think that would also be an interesting story, sort of what's that guilt feel like. And I think it's pretty clear that I want people to take us up on some of these writing prompts. I, I always love when these t- stories uh, make us ask more questions about what happens next or how, how does this story look from the perspective of one of the other characters in the story. And it's been, I don't know, an episode or two since we've asked people to, uh, to send some stories to us. So we'll let that be a call to action. Please take us up on this, send us some stories. But
0: on that note, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman, And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And I can't encourage you enough to check out Glenn's uh, novella, The Lion That Stalks By Night. It's really good. I loved it when I read it. So I really hope that, that you'll take the time to track it down and check it out and read it. And let us know what you think about it on our forum for Clay Temple Original Fiction. Yeah, I would love to know how people respond to this
1: story, even if it's negative. I'd love to hear what people have to say about the story. And, and uh, you know, we've we've put Lovecraft and uh, Howard through the ringer a little bit on this show. So uh, I think I could take it in turn. And hey, while you're on the Clay Devil Forums, uh, stop by the, the forum for Elder sign and Let us know what you thought of the the Beast in the Cave. Brandon posed a lot of really great questions here. And I would love to hear listeners' responses to those questions as, as
0: well. Next time, we'll be back with An Authentic Narrative of a Haunted House by Sheridan Le Fanu. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.